Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. While there are calls for reforming our immigration visa system to make it more merit-based, and I support that, I think it's still important that people who come here as immigrants can bring their immediate family, their children, their wives, so families can be together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, Associate Director of the Institute, and today I have the pleasure of hosting a conversation with Alfonso Aguilar. Good morning, Alfonso. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So for the few of you who do not know who Alfonso is, Alfonso is the president of Latino Partnership for Conservative Principles, a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group, and is also the president of the International Human Rights Group, a nonprofit legal foundation that is accredited before the Organization of the American States in Washington, D.C. And, well, we should also say that Mr. Aguilar serves an advisor to the Holy See's mission to the OES, the Organization of the American States, and has been a member of the Vatican's delegation to the most recent General Assembly of this international organization. However, the reason we invited Mr. Aguilar to have a conversation with us today is that he was a speaker for an event we co-sponsored with Texas Public Policy Foundation on Latinos and the future of conservatism. So what we would like to do today is to talk a little more about this topic and about Latinos, a little less probably about conservatism because we're not a political organization. However, if conservatism means family and if conservatism means freedom of religion, then the research that the Austin Institute helps putting together and what our scholars are defending in what they write and what they do does sound to be in tune with some of the conservative principles. Now, with this big premise, is there such thing as Latinos? Wow, that's a big question. I think the term Latino is, is an American creation, really. I think that the Latino community is not monolithic. You have people that come from different countries in Latin America, and when they arrive here, they don't see themselves as Latino. They arrive here, they see themselves as Puerto Rican or Mexican or Guatemalan. But obviously, in a society that loves labels, when you see so many people coming from Central and South America, it's easy to just label them and put them all together and say, you know, they're Latino. So there's nothing wrong with that label as long as we understand that it's not a monolithic community. It is very varied, as I've said, different uh, countries of origin different social economic backgrounds, different times they've arrived in the United States. There are some that have been in United States territory since uh, the very beginning. I have to remember that many Hispanics were here when we took over half of Mexico and they're still here. So they've been American all along. They're multi-generational Hispanics. Then we have those who've arrived recently or the children of immigrants. I think where they settle makes a difference, whether they went to California, Texas, or Florida. And now we obviously have immigrants going everywhere. You know, before they would go to the major immigration hubs, Boston, Miami, New York. Now they're going everywhere, wherever there's a job, because we need immigrants because uh, our population is really not growing fast enough. So we need people. And the basic resource of any economy of any country is its people. So that's why immigration has always been part of America, not in terms of culture and in terms of the economy. 
There is a Latino community, but obviously it is very diverse and we shouldn't exaggerate the meaning of what Latino means. Okay. So at the event where we were, the Latinos question has been described as probably the central question for the future of conservatism. Now, is this true when we're speaking of social conservatism? So are we basically saying that the Latino vote is the determinant vote when we're talking about defending the family? Are Latino voters asking for what the social conservatives can provide? Or are the Latino voters of today less concerned about it and is actually not a need, the one to defend the family or to defend the family? Oh, I understand. No, no, no. They're they're very interested. Latinos are, and again, there are differences, but I can tell you that a large segment of the Hispanic population is church-going. They are family-centered. Family is extremely important. It's really the backbone of Hispanic culture. You go to Latin America, um, the family is very important. They treasure life, the right to life. So they care deeply about defending life from conception. They care deeply about policies that support the family, uh, the importance of mother and father to raise kids, the importance of community and churches in their lives. You know, we, we mentioned yesterday at the forum how why are Hispanics so supportive of school choices? Because many of them want to send their kids to parochial schools. They see that the community, their neighbors, the, the church plays an important role in their lives. And obviously religious freedom is extremely important for them, that churches are not in any way limited, that they can manifest their faith publicly, that they're not forced in any way to support any behavior that goes against their values. Let me ask you this, because you are an expert and you've been working with Latino conservatives for so many years, I think I can ask you a difficult question for this reason, which is you've talked about the importance for family for Latino and Latino voters. And what comes to mind to everyone are immigration policies. So what would be the pro-family kind of policy that we should have and enact that is consistent with the desire of Latinos? That's a very good question. And I do think that when we look at immigration, you know, I I was the chief of citizenship in the administration of President Bush. And President Bush always said that when we look at immigration policy, we have to balance protecting the security of our homeland. That's an important role for government to ensure that we protect our borders so that our country is safe, but at the same time that we continue to be a welcoming nation. And a lot of families come to the U.S. hoping to improve their lives. So I think that we have to be welcoming to immigrants. We have to be welcoming to families. It's a very difficult debate, but I think without, you know, there are different views, and this is a prudential issue where people may have different opinions. But I think that it is totally consistent to be pro-immigration and at the same time, strongly support border security measures. So I do believe that we need to, for the protection of even of families, because I mean, we're in the middle of a border crisis and what we're seeing is people, unaccompanied children, families, poor people coming to our southern border, making a very dangerous trek to the southern border where people are victims of crime. They're being robbed, women, and girls are being raped, victims of sexual assault. That's something that we should dissuade. So I think we have to really seal the border. We have to send a message that 
people should not come here illegally, that it's a very dangerous trip, that families are endangered. Parents are actually sending their kids by themselves to come here. That's very dangerous because what we're seeing is that this massive movement of people facilitates child trafficking. So we want to discourage that. But as we discourage that, which is ensuring that we protect our border and our homeland, we must look at ways of facilitating the legal flow of those immigrants that we need. As we facilitate that flow, we ensure that those individuals can take care of their families, that they can be with their families. So I think in terms of immigration, our system, our immigrant visa system, most of our immigrant visas are based on, on family preferences. And I think that while there are calls for reforming our immigration visa system to make it more merit-based, and I support that, I think it's still important that people who come here as immigrants can bring their immediate family, their children, their wives, so families can be together. And then I think that we also should look at, we're still going to need migrant workers. We need to find a way to allow those foreign workers that we need for so-called unskilled work, which we know is not unskilled, but requires a lot of skill, like agriculture and construction in other areas, allow them to come here, do their jobs, then be able to return to their families. So there's no real easy answer to your question, but I do think that what we need to stress is that we can have a generous immigration policy and at the same time have strong border security. So I think that every time we are looking at immigration policy, we should think of how do we protect families. So would you say that when we heard news during the previous administration that families were being divided and there were poor treatments of families and members of family, you think that there was a lot of misinformation or that was oh, yeah, true? Absolutely. It was a simplification. The problem is our system is so... It's just such a complex issue. We've always had separation of families. Okay. You know, they try to exaggerate that. I wasn't supportive of President Trump's separation of families. I did think it was cruel to separate children from their parents. It was based on this idea of zero tolerance, where you would prosecute criminally adults for trying to enter illegally. And because children cannot be with their parents when they're being processed criminally, they would be separated. But to be fair, the policy only lasted two months. But we've always had separation of families. Under the Obama administration, Obama deported more people than any other president before, or even deported more people than President Trump. And when you deport people, you're separating families. You're removing an adult, but the family remains here. There was also separation of families at the border. When President Obama saw that surge of unaccompanied minors during his term in office, he separated families that arrived together. He separated for a time the father from the mother and child. So there was a form of separation of families. But again, that occurs because we have a dysfunctional system. So if the problem was misinformation, and here we like to know that the things we read and the data we gather are real ones, where should we look for true information on what happens at the border? Do you think that there is such thing? I know that you're a contributor to several media outlets. Yeah, so well, again, this is such a complex issue that it's difficult... I would say go with the government statistics, the yearbook of immigration statistics from the Department of Homeland Security provides accurate statistics about how many people are arriving at our border. You know, a lot of people thought, for example, that during the Trump administration, there was an effort to block immigrants or to reduce legal immigration. 
when if you look at the statistics, every single year, the U.S. government issued green cards to a million people every single year. We naturalize people every year during President Trump's term. We naturalize over 700,000 people every year, people becoming fully American. So we continue to be open to legal migration and making people citizens. And that happened during Trump. The problem with immigration is that the issue has been politicized. Mm -hmm. As everything. But you are saying, so look it at is, the numbers. It is very difficult to have a conversation. There are some that in the left, the Democrats, want to simplify this issue and just basically push the simplistic narrative that Republicans are anti-immigrant and Democrats are pro-immigrant. Very simple. And just say, well, you know, those who support strong border security measures are anti-immigrant. Well, that's not true. I don't think a pro-family immigration policy or a humane immigration policy is dismantling border security measures and telling people, come to the border, we're going to let you in. What that causes is the massive migration that we're seeing right now, where people are coming here in, in, in droves mm -hmm. and in large numbers. And as I've said, in an environment where they can be victims of crime. And also, as you say, with false hopes, because there's another element to this, and there's the element of asylum. The asylum system is being abused. People are told that they can come here and ask for asylum when they have no legitimate claim to asylum. And that's really playing with the hopes and aspirations of people, you know. Up to 90% of people who come to the border are not given asylum, so they have to return to their home country. So not only are they making this trip, this long, dangerous trip, but they don't have a claim. But it is terrible. So assuming the family of Latino is here, is in this country, and there is no immigration issue, we are the institute that believes in the importance of strong families. Family as the basis of society. And, you know, Greek philosophers got there way before science today showed that the family is the healthiest starting point for any healthy society. But the question would be, if we have pro-family policies enacted in the United States, what is the kind of pro-family policy that someone coming, let's say, from Mexico, since we're in Texas and that's the closest, is looking for? And does that look like what Americans look for? Is the idea of a family, is the family-friendly policy that the different groups are looking for, does it sort of look the same for everyone? I think they want to see from government pro-family policies. First of all, many of them come from countries where there's big government. Government's very involved in the lives of citizens, where they provide all sorts of programs, but not very effectively. They come here because they recognize that in America, we have a system of opportunities that allows anyone to thrive. So a strong economy that creates jobs is a pro-family policy. It's very difficult in Mexico or Central America to start a business. There are many regulations. So in many of these countries, it's hard to have an entrepreneurial spirit. A lot of Hispanics have family-owned businesses. They want to work with their family. They see a business as a way to leave something to their children, to their grandchildren. So they're frustrated they can't do it in their country. So they come here and they immediately open businesses. Hispanics are opening small businesses three times as fast as the national average. And many of those businesses are family-owned businesses. God bless them. So when we think of business, it's not, we have to understand that this is a family thing. So they want to see 
pro-business policies. They want to see an economy that grows, an economy that's not highly regulated like the economies in their home countries. So that to them is supportive of their dreams, their dreams for their families, because they come here because they know that if they come here and they work hard and they are hard workers. And those statistics show that, that they'll be able to send their kids to college and improve their lot in life. So I think they're very attracted by policies that allow for business creation. I think they also respond well to policies that help workers. While many create businesses, the majority are employees. So policies that support the worker, uh, family paid leave, for example, is something that they are very supportive of. A school choice, as I've said, you know, if they can send their kids to a faith-based school, to a parochial school, they'd like to do that instead of sending them to a government-run school. They want to have control over their families. They believe in parental rights. They don't want government to be telling kids about things that should be learned at home or at church. Homeschooling, for example, is something that is becoming more and more popular as some of them are concerned with what's being taught in some public schools. They're looking at that option. But, you know, it also depends on their personal circumstances yeah, because a lot work, of them yeah. have to work, you know, both father and mother. They're coming here because they see a system of freedom and opportunities that will allow them and their families to get ahead. Okay, let me now, I should stress this. We mentioned at the beginning that you also work with the Organization of the American States. And I think that this gives you a privileged eye in understanding what is really happening in all the countries in Latin America and knowing what their laws really look like. And so you also have, I think, a sense of how much U.S. policies and laws are actually influencing their laws in their country. Because we're talking about Latinos here, but there is also the other way around, like how the United States is responsible in many ways for policies being enacted elsewhere. So could you tell us more about this relation? Because I think very few of the listeners know about the existence even of such an organization. Unfortunately, we are seeing right now a globalist agenda advancing throughout Latin America, the Caribbean, and through the developed world. So we're seeing multilateral organizations and wealthy countries, including the United States, promoting a, what I would call a form of cultural imperialism or what Pope Francis has called cultural colonialism, of trying to really challenge the culture or traditions and faith of these countries to impose anti-family, anti-life agendas. We saw it during the Obama administration, an effort to pressure countries to, for example, legalize abortion, actually violating federal law because under federal law, under the so-called Silgen Amendment, which is a writer amendment, Silgender Amendment, you cannot, the U.S. government cannot provide funds to lobby for or against abortion. But when Kenya was working on their constitution to develop a new constitution, the Obama administration pushed them hard to include the right to abortion. They didn't succeed, but that was an effort to lobby for that. What this is, is is sadly, and we're seeing in our country, but, you know, efforts by the left to redefine the human person, the family, and to really limit religious freedom. And that's what we're seeing abroad, efforts to promote the legalization of abortion, to challenge social and cultural norms in those countries through the UN or the Organization of American States or the so-called Inter-American System of Human Rights, which is 
affiliated to the OAS system. And certainly the United States through the U.S. Agency for International Development. It was a phenomenal when we saw President Trump actually defending the sovereignty of these countries, which is ironic, you know, because they try to demonize President Trump and certainly his tone on many issues, including immigration, was not very good and it is not very charitable. But he, on his policies, was just really defensive of family and the sovereignty of countries to decide issues pertaining to life and the family. He went to the UN. I was at the UN at the opening of the General Assembly in 2019 when he made it very clear there is no global right to abortion. Multilateral organizations should not try to impose abortion on other countries. But when the UN does it, and they do it frequently, they tell countries, you have an international obligation. What international obligation? They fabricate soft law. They come out with little resolutions and statements that that are not binding, have no validity or standing or whatsoever, and they fabricate these international standings. We do a lot of work in Latin America to try to encourage countries to defend their sovereignty. Yeah, because they have the most, and we had Professor Castaldi here, Latin America has some of the most pro-life laws. Yeah. And we should have, I think we should we have work another- Professor Castaldi. No, and, yeah, and another podcast episode just on the soft law and all the idea of treaty interpretation and treaty bodies making laws that states did not agree to have. But- Probably but but, but should... going to that issue, because, you know, look at Central America and we see, for example, now an effort to impose abortion on El Salvador. El Salvador has one of the strongest pro-life laws in the world. They've been getting pressure from the UN, the Inter-American System of Human Rights, from Democratic legislators, Senator Leahy and other Democrats writing letters to the president of El Salvador and legislators saying liberalize abortion. And they've stood their ground because over 80 percent, polling shows this, over 80 percent of Salvadorians support life. And that's the case in Honduras. That's the case in Guatemala. And these are poor countries that depend on foreign aid, but they're defending their sovereignty. This point about cultural imperialism or cultural colonialism, I've always been constructively critical of the socially conservative movement in the United States in the sense that I think it's often very parochial. We tend to think about life and family in the United States, which of course we have to, but when it comes to the world, we don't think too much about the impact the U.S. has in the world through policy. Yes, when a Republican president arrives, we, we stress the need for Mexico City policy, but that's just a part of a small thing that we could do. I mean, it's very important, but there are just so many other things that the U.S. government could do to protect the sovereignty of countries. The Trump administration reduced funding. For the first time in history, they invoked the Silgender Amendment, which I just mentioned, to reduce funding to the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights because of their aggressive lobbying for the legalization of abortion in the region. That has, had never been done. But that was a, an effort that took time and really most pro-life organizations were really not aware of. A lot of people don't know that the Democratic Party promotes abortion on demand. And that is a problem. Immigration is an important issue by all means that Hispanics deeply care about, but it's just one issue. There are many in the country, and there are some Republicans as well have done this, that try to reduce the issues for Hispanics to immigration when I think Hispanics, like average Americans, care about, you know, dollars and cent issues, family, life, uh, healthcare, education, all of that. I've encouraged, actually, conservatives to look at starting a news network in Spanish that has 
programming that promotes life and promotes family. Look, EWTN in Spanish, for example, is very, very popular throughout Latin America and in the United States. It has a really big audience. They have news programming. I think it's very good. In the traditional market in English, I mean, we have options, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a lot of the media that does have a, a liberal bias, perhaps even more than a liberal bias today. But there are alternatives, you know, the Fox News, uh, Newsmax or others. We don't have those alternatives in the Spanish language market. Well, that's very interesting. And also, you know, you never know if in our audience there is someone now out there with the funds or the will or the desire to start something like that. But we should just, you know, well, if, if, try the, if the Murdochs are listening, <laughs> yeah, well, they should think about it because... Also, it's, it's an audience that really listens to their news. They're very loyal to their programming and to Spanish language programming and they're consumers as well. Well, we'll see. We'll let you know if anyone is reaching out to us, you know, asking for more information on what to do and how. For now, I want to thank you, Alfonso, Mr. Aguilar, for your time with us, for having been such a wonderful speaker for the event we had with Texas Public Policy Foundation. And we hope to see you again in Austin, in Texas. We'll listen to you on the news in English and in Spanish. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for facilitating this important discussion about Hispanics and the growth of the conservative movement. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.